Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious life. Some monsters are born, some are influenced by their surroundings, or the people in their lives. On November 27, 1987, a young girl went missing when two monsters set their sights on the girl riding her little yellow bicycle. So, if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Sean Kingy was just 12 years old when she left a hot bread shop in Noosa Junction in New Zealand on November 27, 1987, and walked to the nearby Pinaroo Park before hopping on her prized yellow 10-speed bicycle. She was last seen around 4.30 p.m. riding that yellow bike through the park in the direction of home. When her mother arrived home, she noticed that Sean was not there, but assumed she had run into a friend from school or from volleyball and was just delayed on her ride home. Hours passed, and with each movement of the clock, her parents grew more worried. At 8 p.m., they were concerned enough that they began retracing her steps in hopes of finding her, hoping that she had simply gotten distracted or lost track of time. Instead, they found that beloved yellow bicycle abandoned in the park. They immediately reported Sean missing. Despite the late hour, they were able to get her missing persons report inserted into the local newspaper the next morning, and police began collecting information from anyone who was in the park that day and may have seen Sean. Soon, they had over 700 leads in her case. Each one entered into the computers, and police began rounding up every predator they had on file. Anyone from sex offenders to pedophiles, flashers, and loiterers. All were brought in and asked questions while plain-clothed cops staked out the beaches. 
But even after all of the work and investigation, the only really strong lead they had was that a white 1973 Holden station wagon had been seen in the parking bay at Pinaru Park and was unaccounted for. A car reportedly driven by a man in his early 30s with sun-bleached hair, a detail that was read over the radio on November 29, 1987. That same day, a Noosa resident came into the station and reported that a person matching that description had harassed her at Castaway Creek the previous Friday, the day Sean went missing. Not just that, but she had seen a white station wagon speed away from the area and was able to recite the license plate number to the police. They ran the numbers and the name Valmy Beck popped up. Valmy and her husband of about a year, Barry Watts, had been living in Perth but had begun renting a property in Queensland, and both had extensive criminal records. While the investigation seemed to be heading in a positive direction, it experienced a major blow on December 3, 1987. That was the day that Sean Kingy's body was found lying on the bank of a shallow sandy creek about 15 kilometers away from Castaway Creek. Her school dress was pulled over her waist and her underwear was lying nearby. On her throat were two massive cuts, one through the spine in addition to 12 other stab wounds, three of which were fatally to her heart. With the case turned from abduction to murder, police zeroed in on Valme and Barry. Valme Beck, at just 12 years old, began working in a clothing factory to help support her family. By 15, she became a ward of the state and spent much of 1961 to 1972 in and out of jail. While she was in prison in Perth, she met the dangerous and twisted Catherine Burney, whose murders committed with her husband, referred to as the Morehouse murders, were covered on this podcast back in May. I'm sure we can all imagine what a wonderful influence Catherine was. Prior to meeting and marrying Barry, a criminal in his own right, Valme had six children from two previous marriages. Police visited the property that they were renting on December 11th and found that the couple had not been there since December 4th, the day the news of Sean's body was released to the public. In the home were hair dye kits and cut hair that indicated they had changed their appearance just before fleeing. Thankfully, the couple made the mistake of sending a rent payment via money order that originated from New South Wales. So plainclothed officers headed that way and were able to track them down on the 12th and extradite them back to Queensland by the 14th, where they were charged with abduction, rape, and murder the following day. While Barry refused to talk, Valme was more than willing to chat and with the help of her comments and secret recordings from their adjacent cells, they were able to recreate the entire crime. According to their story, Barry was unsatisfied with the sexual aspect of his new marriage. Valme was 10 years older and he fantasized about raping a young virgin and making sure she was no older than 13. So the pair set out to make these fantasies a reality. They made a few attempts in Ipswich before noticing Sean riding her bike in the park. Valme stopped the young girl and asked her to help her find her lost poodle. As soon as she got off of her bike, Barry grabbed the girl from behind and forced her into their station wagon, where she was bound and driven to Timbirwa. The whole abduction took just 30 seconds. She was then raped before being stabbed, strangled, and abandoned. When they were finished, they simply went home and went back to their normal lives, 
something Sean will never get to do. Thelma Beck pleaded guilty to the abduction and rape at a committal hearing in April of 1988, though she said she was not guilty of the murder. Barry Watts pleaded guilty to all of his charges. Thalme was sentenced to three years, five years, and life imprisonment on October 20th, 1988, while Barry was given three years, 15 years, and life for all of his. Years later, Barry would be tried again for a separate murder, that of Helen Mary Feeney, who was last seen alive on October 29th, 1987, one month before Sean was murdered. He was later acquitted due to lack of evidence. Police believe that it is unlikely that Sean and Helen were the couple's only victims. They believe they could be responsible for the deaths of several young girls and women all across Australia. Since arriving in prison, Valme Beck has become a punching bag of sorts for other inmates. On one occasion, even being struck in the head with a tin can in a sock causing serious injury. She was eventually transferred and devoted her life to Christianity. She and Barry divorced in 1990, and she began a new relationship with a convicted rapist named Robert Ferrand in 1993. It seems she has a type. She has unsuccessfully applied for parole on three separate occasions and would have been eligible in 14.5 years. But before that day could come, she was placed in a medically induced coma following a heart surgery in May of 2008. Police had high hopes that this would elicit a deathbed confession. Unfortunately, she died on May 27th without ever gaining consciousness. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on November 28th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Thank you for listening to Morning Cup of Murder. This daily true crime podcast can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by searching Morning Cup of Murder. I'd love it if you stopped by and said hi. Stay safe.